Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello. How's it going? Hey, Robbie. Hey, where are you? Good. Hey, Oliver. Hello, hello. Hey, Deimos, Adam. Hey. This must have been a popular book. We got the split teams. Yeah, yeah. I guess who would have seen that coming, right? (laughs) Yeah, we had nine people sign up. So that would have been, with me and Hoy, 11 people in a single call. and That's a lot. That's too many. Yeah. I figure once we're past the Brady Bunch grid, we need to separate. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. So... Me and Hoy plus seven guests is has been what we've landed on as the maximum size for one patron book club. Yeah. So uh, this is this is the gang. Uh, we're here to discuss William Gibson's Neuromancer. Uh, Robbie, which edition of the book you got? So I got uh, I got I got this old paperback, uh, which is great, and mine is even better than most. Um, when my, when my son was tiny, we read a lot of books together, stuff like, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, Lord of the Rings, Dune and, and Neuromancer. And one of the last things I did before we all went into quarantine in 2020 was I went to a reading that Gibson did in Harvard square and I got him to sign it to my son. So when he's, I don't know what the the right age for Neuromancer is. I feel like it's 14. Uh, you know, that's going to be his. And now I feel bad because I don't have an equivalent for my daughter and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta fix this. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. How about you, Oliver? Double down, get her neuromancer. Um, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I have an ace paperback uh, of neuromancer, the same one I got when I was about fourteen or whatever. And I thought it was from '86, but in the back it advertises Idoru, which came much later. So I'm not sure what year uh, is the provenance of this paperback. But if anybody else has it, you know. Cool. How about you, Adam? I've got the. This is the twentieth anniversary edition Mm. this was a library book so speaking of technological anachronisms it's from high school i bought off ebay very cool how about you demos um i i read it before but i couldn't i have the uh, same paperback that rabbi showed us and uh i couldn't find it so i ended up uh, listening to the audiobook which was narrated by gibson nice so i think i read it like 20 years ago or something like that and dan how about you uh, so I've, I've got my 1986 uh, Grafton edition from the UK. I'm sorry, I, camera isn't working, so I can't show you it. So I've got a kind of spiky-haired guy poking through a grid um, uh, with a kind of 1950s golden age science fiction city in the background rather than the one that uh, William Gibson came up with. Nice. I've got this one here. It's a current edition. Um, it's also by Ace. Um, it says 2004, but it also says this is the 46th printing. So I'm assuming this is more recent than 2004. Um, but yeah, that's the edition that I'm working with. I'm um, also a reminder that um, that our recording is going to make it into the mainstream um, after the um, after the official episode is dropped. A few weeks after that, this one will drop as well. Uh, yes, Dan. So I'm really sorry. That's me trying to make my camera work. I do apologize. Oh. <laughs> For those listening, Dan accidentally raised his hand. Um, anyways, cool. And I'll probably cut that part out anyways. But um, um, oh, actually, what am I talking about? These are patron book clubs. I don't cut anything out of patron book clubs. So no, this will definitely make it. <laughs> when I don't have single audio tracks, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not futzing around with the editing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have any high Gaxian word nominations? I don't know if it's it's high Gaxian, but like for regular guy Gaxian, I really like flechette, right? Because Molly's got that flechette pistol. And it's one of those words that like when you're reading it, you're like, I assume I know what that means. Just like cleric or dexterity, right? Yeah, that's a very familiar word from the flechette pistol. One of a hundred things Shadowrun just ripped right out of his book, copy pasted. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do we have any other nominations? Yeah, um, arcology, mm. uh, a city contained within one immense vertical structure, considered ideal for reducing wasteful consumption and preserving the natural surroundings. <laughs> Since there's no mention of farmland in any of this story, I guess that's where they make all their food. In the they talk colleges. a lot about they talk a lot about eating krill, and uh, I think in Count Zero they talk a little bit more about like the sort of high efficiency food production. The word that I would nominate is hypnagogic or hypno hypno. How do you say that? I think you got it. Hypnagogic. 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 Okay. Okay. Hypnagogic re- uh, related to a state the state immediately before falling asleep. And that's on page 193 of mine. And it says the density of information overwhelmed the fabric of the matrix, triggering hypnagogic images, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of cool and worked well. Yeah, that's from um, hypnagog- hypnagogic hallucinations, which is, um, you remember, there's hypnopompic and hypnagogic. Hypnagogic is when you're going to sleep. Hypnopompic is when you're getting up from sleep. And it's, you know, where these uh, little bits of dream kind of intrude into your consciousness just as you're sliding into sleep. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I used to have really fun in that. Uh, I used to have fun in that state because I would, I would imagine that I was kind of floating above the bed and just kind of rocking back and forth above the bed, and it would actually feel like I was. And that was like a, when I was like ten years old. I thought that was really fun to like do that. The, the, the other word I'd throw in is an obvious one, which is cyberspace, which obviously Gibson coined. And I love the idea that it was supposed to be evocative and meaningless. And it's anything but. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love that. Um, so Oliver had read this before. Who else has read this before? Dan, had you read this before? I have, absolutely. Yes. Okay, so Adam and I are the only newbies. And everybody else here had read it previously. I've probably read this a dozen times by now. I've read it like every other year pretty much since I was 16. So it's one of those books for me. <laughs> I've probably read this about the same amount. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, what are your thoughts on Neuromancer? Well, as a teenager, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, this has stayed on my shelf ever since. Although I hadn't reread it till now. And, you know, I thought it was really cutting edge and cool and sexy. And, like, looking at it now, it's it's obviously really influential and, you know, like in the Matrix and what have you, and, and prescient. But I've got to say, I did not enjoy it this time. And for me, it was all surface and it it really suffered from being dated and not in a charming kind of way, like the the golden age of science fiction. Um, You know, and part of it was that it's because it's prescient, it's been superseded by reality. And what was exciting then is now quotidian or slightly off. But but also where, like in in the last book we read, um, all the corporations were made up because the specificity now is really a bit laughable. You know, so when you're, you know, murdering somebody over three megabytes of hot RAM, you know, it's just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, and, you know, the, the, you know, the brands, you know, the throwback brands, you know, Hitachi and Braun and all this kind of thing. Like, yeah, my dog clippers are Braun. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and I think, 
it, you know, that we understand now what Case is doing in a very different way. And it, it's now a bit tawdry. And this, you know, this guy who's kind of looking for drugs and wearing a catheter while he's kind of vicariously living his life out through Molly and digital constructions. It's like, mm, yeah, didn't it didn't really do it for me. And I thought thematically it was quite barren or off the mark in a way that, you know, do Androids do electric sheep was just incredible. So Really, for the first time, I think of all the books I've read as a teenager that I'm reading now, this was the one that was a big miss. I think I'm probably in a minority of one there, but <laughs> that's how, how I felt about it. Gamos, what are your takes? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, I've only read it twice. Um, well, I read it once, and then I listened to it the second time. Um, it just it strikes me as very poetic. It's, 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 it's written in a way where, you know, individual passages, you just linger, and and I, 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 I like the language. So, um I, you know, I I think it's very prescient in terms of AI and chatbots, and um, I'm you know it's very timely. Um, raises lots of questions about uh, what does it mean to be human, and at what point to become self-aware. Is it a switch that's flipped, or is there some kind of gradation? Um, I, I really enjoyed it, uh, and I, I kind of want to read it now in print. Having listened to it, it was just a teaser. It wasn't good enough. <laughs> Adam, um, I thought it was. Uh... The style, I didn't like the style. I found the style like really irritating to read, maybe because I was rushing through it. Uh, and I agree with Dan that it really, it feels more dated than like stuff we've read that was written in the 30s, in my opinion. It feels really dated. I didn't really like the style, but it was, it wasn't total junk either. There were some interesting things in there, <clears throat> but um, if it hadn't been for the book club, I probably wouldn't have finished it. <laughs> Yeah. So Oliver and Robbie, we've got some some harsh <laughs> critiques of your beloved neuromancer. I'm just rage quitting the club. <laughs> yeah, Oliver, what what are your responses to this? Uh, whatever, man. It's all fair. It's all fair. Uh, you know, this is his first novel. It's very much, as he has said in some interviews, you know, it's a heist with noirish overtones. It just happens to have all this like sci-fi crap on top, right? Uh, I personally love stuff like the branding because to me it's like having a brawn branded murder drone or whatever it's that nice uh friction between the familiar and the unfamiliar that just hits a real sweet spot for me um also i really enjoy reading this having read burning chrome his short story collection of stories all written before this because i have i would be hard-pressed to find another like collection of short stories followed by a first novel where you can so clearly see the laboratory of ideas in the short stories being coming out in this like everybody knows johnny mnemonic is a prequel to uh neuromancer and that gets mentioned and summarized in one of the later chapters but all kinds of specific ideas, like the dead guy on a ROM thing. There's a whole short story just all about that, you know? So it's fascinating as a literary artifact to me. Uh, and yeah, I'm definitely looking at it through, like, absolutely thick, like, fire-struck red rose-tinted glasses because it's an integral book from when I was young. But for all its first novel troubles, and also the fact that it's, like, the horniest William Gibson book, I forgot. <laughs> Every time I come back to it, you read most of his later books, so like, almost immediately, like, a lot of the sex just kind of leaks out. But this is, like, a lot of sex, like, the primal urge coming up in many scenes. I didn't even remember it coming up. Like, I remember him sleeping with Molly early on, but then, like, you know, later when he's with Winterbute uh, in, in the beach there, and, like, he still has sex with Linda Lee again, and I'm like, okay. Uh, you know, everything's described in, like, penetration. And also, like, if someone has small, hard breasts, you learn about it uh, in this book. <laughs> 
You also know so, every time that Case has an erection as well. Like lead, like a bar of lead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, Sounds, he has very firm erections. Yeah, I, I, would, I don't think I'd enjoy that. But uh, <laughs> so, so for all these faults that I absolutely acknowledge, and I also the highly descriptive style of his, which I think he perfects, I would say... Um, if you go all the way up to uh, the Zero uh, History, uh, the third of the Blue Ant trilogy, I reread the first chapter of that where he just describes a hotel for pleasure. I'll just read that chapter and put it back on the shelf. So I love that style, but I have watched people who I've been desperate to get into him just ricochet off of it. So I, I you know, I get it. I get it. It's not for everybody, I don't think, but it still really does it for me, uh, even when the roast in the glass was taken into effect. Uh, I really enjoy this novel for all its faults. I think it's a pretty good first novel, uh, especially considering that it is such a tremendous trope setter, like aside from the almost comedic lazy copy pasting of Shadowrun role playing game with this. Um, just think about how many people have been riffing off of this ever since. So you know, oh, you have to respect that. I think absolutely, uh, Robbie. Yeah, no, I I love this book. I loved it as a kid. I still love it. Um, I think that uh, one thing that Oliver said that I really agree with is that this is not um, primarily a science fiction book. This is this is a heist novel. This is crime fiction, um, and it's set in a science fiction setting. Um, I I saw William Gibson talk one time, and he was saying that uh, the book that he was reading a lot that he set out to kind of emulate was um, the Ipcrest File by Len Dayton. Um, and I think this book is much better, but I think that's just because I'm from a different generation. Um, and you know, all the stuff with like, uh, kind of like the, the, the like excessive horniness and whatever, um, it really is this sort of like central tension in the book, like talking about themes, um, where, you know, case and the whole, um, like console cowboy culture has this sort of contempt for the meat space, but you kind of keep getting dragged back into it because it's the essence of our nature. And it's sort of a very like psychedelic theme that Gibson draws out through that like combination and juxtaposition of like both like drug culture and, um, you know, sort of cyberspace, the sort of like proto online, whatever. Um, there's a lot of stuff where, you know, you talk about things seeing, seeming dated. And I think that, um, you know, you have to kind of look at this as being um, not like an accurate prediction of the next like 30, 40 years, but as being sort of a reflection of that period of time in the early 80s. Right. And sort of like this was the future they projected forward from that point. I love retrofuturism. It's like one of my favorite things in the world. And like having a novel like this where it's sort of like very like cutting edge, you know, day after tomorrow, whatever. But like a major uh, like, a, like a really important scene involves a bank of payphones. Like, I, I don't think that that creates any kind of tension. That's just saying that, like, this is a really accurate view of the future as projected forward from 1983, um, uh, which which I also think is fantastic. And uh, I don't know, I could I can go on. And on. Hey, hey, Robbie, can I ask you a question? Would you agree yeah. that like the thing that William Gibson gets most put on him that he has spent his whole writing career denying is that he predicts the future? Yeah, you know, right. like, yeah, your your he... book's about the future. He's like, no, yeah. <laughs> but decades. He still gets asked that. Yeah. Uh, there was a, he, he wrote a book called, um, distrust that particular flavor, um, where it's sort of a collection of essays. And there's one in there where, you know, uh, he talks about all the people that ask him why Japan. And he's like, it's sort of like, that's the essence of it, right? Is I'm not predicting the future. I'm looking at like the very edge of the present and sort of that's where you're going to find it. That's where I found it. And so that's what I write about so much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, so my experience of reading it, um, I didn't enjoy it. Um, sorry, Robbie mm. and Oliver. I imagine if I had read it for the first time when I was 14, I would, though, because the reasons I didn't enjoy it are different than the reasons that Dan didn't. I actually agree with you, Robbie. I love 
I love the retro future futurism. I love the weird brand names that they're that that we're projecting are going to be like world dominating brand names. It cracks me up that Braun is now your dog clipper brand, and and it's like this major corporation in this universe. I love that. I really enjoy that part of it. I just um, I don't know. I don't like Christopher Nolan films. I I don't like Inception. I don't like Shutter Island. I don't like um uh what is um in, inner inner interstellar. Inception. I don't oh, like Interstellar. Yeah. That, that that's what it's called, right? No, Interstellar, you're right. I thought you were going to say Inception, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I don't like those movies. And this feels like that as a heist. And um and like there's a lot of stuff. I, I mean, I love David Lynch. A lot of people don't love David Lynch, but like this style is not my style. I think when I was like 13 or 14, I might have been way more into it. But now it's just it's just not for me. I think it's unnecessarily confusing. Um, I think that um, I don't know. I it, it, it just it didn't work for me on that level. But um, I did. Now that we're doing um, plot synopses on the on the on the episode, um, I asked um, ChatGPT to write a uh, plot synopsis Ooh. for Jesus. Neuromancer. You're bringing it full circle. You're having the AI critique yep. the AI. And I asked for it to write it in the style of a hard-boiled detective in a film noir. And uh, this is the plot synopsis we have. Let me guys, let, let me know if you guys feel like this is a good plot synopsis for this. It was a cold and rainy night when I first cracked open the pages of Neuromancer. The neon lights of the city gleamed through the window as I delved into a world where technology and corporations ruled with an iron fist. The story follows a hacker by the name of Case who had lost his ability to access the virtual reality space called The Matrix. Case is approached by a mysterious AI called Wintermute, who needs his help to break into a powerful family's computer system and steal the data required to merge with another AI called Neuromancer. Together, Case and a ragtag team of misfits, including a street <laughs> samurai named Molly and an AI construct named Dixie Flatline, embark on a dangerous mission to achieve Wintermute's goal. As they delve deeper into the Tessier Ashpole family's computer system, they encounter obstacles at every turn. From a virtual reality construct of the family's patriarch to an assassin named Riviera, the mission was not for the faint of heart. In the end, Case and his team successfully steal the data and deliver it to Wintermute. The two AIs merge and become more powerful than anyone could have imagined, with the potential to shape the future of humanity. Neuromancer is a thrilling and thought-provoking novel that explores the dark side of technology and its impact on society. As I closed the book, I couldn't help but wonder what the future held for us all. Would we end up like the characters in Neuromancer, consumed by our own technological creations? Only time would tell. Yeah. All right. I dig that. I could quibble with the presentation of Riviera, but otherwise, yeah, that's, that's about it. <laughs> well, there, there was no AI construct of the family's patriarch either, right? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I misheard, I misheard that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah whatever. They, these are minor details. <laughs> well, now there are. <laughs> yeah. ChatGPT has decided, and it is so. Yeah, they're going to come out with a new edition, 47th printing. Well, it's what ChatGPT can do well, right? It's photocopy stuff that's already been written. But anyway, sorry, I've been talking with a lot of the magazine editors who are very angry right now about ChatGPT. So yeah, sorry. Demos. Sounds like a grade eight student who uh, cheated on his book report by, uh, you know, basically uh, tweaking the words on the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Yep. Totally. 
Cool. So I don't know. What kind of a direction do you guys want to take this conversation in? Does anybody have a, a question for the group or an idea of something we want to chat about? Well, I, I mean, I think the the meat uh, the meat versus the the fantasy thing is a big thing. I think there was just a lot about permeable membranes that where people are trying to steal themselves off from life because you get in various contexts. You, you not only get the obvious one with Case and the Matrix and his contempt for his body, but you also get like Molly and her puppet days, right? And how mm-hmm. she's like, you're not supposed to know what's going on, but dreams are creeping in. And then you have uh, Tessie Rashford. Yeah. Yeah, you have Tessie Rashpool talking about cryosleep, and he's like, you're not supposed to feel the cold or dream anything, but guess what? I got both, and it kind of drove me crazy. Uh, you know, So I, I feel like there's a lot to do with the boundaries of, that we try to draw between ourselves and the things we don't want to touch and how futile that is. I also felt like slow moving, like for all the talk of speed in this, for all the talk of like Molly's you know, sped up reflexes or like, well, you're in the Matrix, like 10 days is five seconds or whatever, that kind of thing. Um, there was a lot of slow, slow moving death as a metaphor in this, you know, the toxin sacks in Case's body, the Quang virus just slowly becoming a part of the thing it's undoing over six hours, you know? Um, yeah, all that kind of thing. So I just, yeah, I was wondering what kind of motifs you guys felt you saw in this, uh, maybe along those lines, or if you want to discuss those ones, I don't know. Like what, what, it's actually weird that you bring that up because that is something that I really got out of it on this read through. I think a thing that I was kind of focusing on, because it's something that is very present in the book that, you know, I, uh, the first few times I read it, I didn't really like know how it fit into place but there's a whole thing with the wasps right where like um you know case has like the weird thing with like the the wasp nest that he like burned down um when he was younger and then like that's the vision that um that tessier had for like the the tessier ashpool whatever sort of like create this like artificial wasp hive um and i think you know maybe what gibson was getting at is sort of like that's the reason why case was the person for this job right it's like by the end of this you got to hate something and sort of it's not enough to come up with this like idealized uh intellectual idea of who you are and how you fit into the world you have to kind of get past that and get to this like raw emotional state um where you're interacting with it and sort of everybody in the novel to varying degrees is kind of full of shit about who they are um and it's sort of like this is the thing that makes case right for the job is that being put in this situation is going to push him past that yeah when he's screaming about like just do something like give me the password so something will friggin' change i don't i don't even yeah. know if it'll be yeah. good <laughs> like just yeah. make something happen yeah yeah <laughs> Dan, do you have any comments about any of this, or would you like to propose a different line of conversation? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, I find it re- really, really interesting to see how, how much uh, Oliver and Rabbi um, got out of it, and and the the, the depth they got out of those th- those those scenes. Um, I mean, I think the, the the things that I enjoyed were probably more on the surface. I mean, particularly the first heist. Um, which I thought was was well drawn, and um, and you know the idea of inciting a riot while Case is is, is hacking and and Molly is physically there, and and it was it was yeah, fun to picture that, and, and you could kind of you know see that in Blaze in the Dark or whatever, and that, that was that was really cool. Um, but um, but, uh, but but I yeah I, I definitely missed a, a lot of what those guys were were saying. Demos. Um, I, I think so, Oliver, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, Gibson's a Torontonian, right? Uh, you are wrong, wrong. Uh, no, <laughs> he lives in Vancouver, which is another thing I think that really feeds into this novel. I mean, you think about a sort of Asian forward multicultural city covered in brand names, like what, you know, leaking into the future through his book, right? It makes a lot of sense. Okay. But I'm I, sorry, why, 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 why did Toronto come to mind? Um, I thought something about the, um, there was something about, uh, Screaming Fist being a Toronto uh, band in the 80s and uh, some other stuff. I, the whole concept of, um, uh, I, I guess you don't have to be from Toronto 
and be Canadian to be a Rush fan. <laughs> right? <You> don't even <laughs> have to be true. Canadian. Um, but, you know, the Rush concept album Hemispheres um, had come out, obviously, you know, in the years leading up to it. And to me, that seemed a bit of the paradigm there with uh, Wintermute and Neuromancer uh, being almost like two hemispheres that are joined. Um, so I was just trying to uh, think about where he might have been getting some of that inspiration from or or what he might have been uh, springing off from. Yeah, I mean, I don't know Freud and that stuff well enough to know if he was ripping off of there, but I, I do know that, like, from just the collection of his interviews and everything I've consumed over the years and seeing him talk, he really is a guy who just kind of, like, looks around him, like, really looks around him. Like, the cyberspace thing, people often will say, oh, where did you get the idea for something so wild as that? And he's like, I was walking past an arcade, and I saw some kids really leaning into the Pac-Man machines, and I was like, what if they went in the Pac-Man machines, basically? <laughs> you know, it's just, we, we, I think often we want to have these super deep reasons for things in the novels that we love or, or hear a lot about, even if we don't love them. And a lot of time the author's like, I don't know, man, I walked past some Pac-Man players and cyberspace happened. Anyway, I predicted the internet. Ha ha ha. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Although it's not that he might not have predicted it as much as uh, made it come to be, right? <laughs> I think that's Well, true. yeah, think about how Star Trek, you know, inspired so many engineers to get into that profession and then they influenced their designs uh, on things. And absolutely, yeah, yeah. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is just a very small detail, but I love that like this Linda Lee character is such an important part of it, just because I'm pretty sure that's a reference to the Velvet Underground song, Cool It Down, where he's like, I'm looking for Miss Linda Lee, because she's got the power to love you by the hour. And it's just <laughs> about like the sex worker he's hanging out with called Linda Lee. Um, so I don't know, it felt like a very, like a very kind of William Gibson reference. And I like that he's like, also this, he's clearly somebody who is a pretty hip guy in 1983 is keyed into the drug scene is keyed into the music scene like this is this is a guy who's got like a level a level of street cred that at least that's the vibe i'm getting from from reading him that i think a lot of the authors that we've covered on this show do not uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> so it is fun seeing some of those things kind of work their way into the fiction yeah, oh, I, yeah, I completely agree with you, Jeff. And, and that's the vibe that I got when I read it, that this was like a cool, slightly older guy who who was into all those scenes and it's like, wow. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've got a question I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on, other than I would also just love to hear the people who didn't like the book say more of what they liked about it, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, cyberpunk, right? Like, like Jeff got me thinking about the punk side of that, talking about street cred and stuff. This is not the first cyberpunk novel, but you will regularly hear people say so, um, because maybe it was the first really big one. Uh, did any of you have any thoughts about why this was the thing that set the rocket off for the genre and not some of Bruce Irving's writings from earlier or other people's? Adam, do you have any thoughts or theories about this? I've never read uh, William Sterling or William Gibson. I was, you know, in the nineties, I, everybody was talking about it, but I just never picked it up. So I can't, I can't really speak to that. I don't think. Do you have any thoughts as to why maybe this is the novel that got everybody really excited for cyberpunk as a genre? I don't know. I mean, I, like, I don't, I didn't like it that much, so I can't see why, <laughs> you know, um, you know why it would be this um thing that started a revolution or whatever or like a new genre i guess you would say um how about you robbie do you have theory? i don't know hey, you know i think um talking about street cred and talking about how he talks in brands a lot i think um he creates this sort of like this um 
I don't know, this like cadence, this meter to the way that he writes, where you really kind of uh, grasp early on that you don't understand everything that they're talking about and that you don't have to. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that, again, they just talk about in like in like brands or like real specific terms. Like, uh, you know, he's not smoking cigarettes. He's smoking Yehewans, right? Like that's like that's like a thing. And you're like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of that. But you kind of like just just pick it up and adapt, right? Or in Stray Light, there's the, was it the Lato Akesian light pump? And like, I finally went and like Googled that. I'm like, what the hell is that anyway? And like, it's nothing. It's just like Gibson made it up, but it, it kind of sounds like it's something and you kind of pick it up and you say, like, I am fully immersed in this world that I don't 100 percent understand. But like I get all the important things and I can get sort of like the character and plotting of it without feeling like, I'm, you know, I need to like go to a lecture or like do my homework. Um, and I think that that really made it um, more approachable, like weirdly enough, like saying you don't have to understand most of this. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. I think I think there's something interesting here where, where Gibson does something that I don't know if people already did it before, but he's the first person I'm aware of, where he fuses classic sort of Star Trek techno babble of like, oh, you got to put the thing to the thing, thing with a sense of knowing coolness. Like you've got an older <laughs> brother telling you about a band you've never heard of. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's a potent cocktail, I think. Yeah, and I can see that that I could see how that would excite the imagination of the kinds of people who are into role playing games, and would also <laughs> yeah. make somebody very excited about creating a game like Shadowrun. Which I guess, I mean, coincidentally, I guess that is a, a good segue into the yeah. gaming side of the conversation. Unless Demos, it looks like you have something to say. No, I just, I mean, I was in the gaming scene back in then, and it was he, he it was a zeitgeist. It was he just, he just <sighs> gonna was that came out at the exact right time. It just hit the button, won like three awards, the Hugo, the Nebula, uh, okay, Dick. Okay, Dick. Uh, and then I just remember that it really, it triggered everyone to go like shadow run was like a natural, uh, consequence of neuromancer. Right. Like, and so, and a lot of people that I knew went from D and D to start playing shadow run is in the, in the like late eighties, early nineties. So I mean, yeah, do you have a response to that? Sorry, me. Yeah, I mean, I was. Damos virtually took the words out of my mouth. I, I, I'd written zeitgeist with with a big <laughs> circle around it because it's bang on, and 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 there was something in the air. I mean, like even Brett Easton Ellis is using like similar techniques in American Psycho. Yeah, good point. Um, and uh, and so I think that's that, that, that that's right. And you know, and once you get a, a a buzz around a book, everyone talks about it. Everyone wants to read it, and it and it is approachable. I mean, on one level, it. It reminded me, Olive's going to kill me now, of Dan Brown, actually. Oh. Um, <laughs> because it's, 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 it's really episodic. It's chopping between characters. Um, and, you know, and, and essentially not a lot's really going on. You know, Case is, is basically forced by an AI to, to, to do a bunch of stuff. And he's too busy looking for drugs and, and leching over Molly to quite work out what's going on. And actually, he's, he's, Although he's called a rider, he's a passenger. And Dan, I'm glad you said that because that that jogged a, a thought that I had had while reading while reading this while finishing up reading this last night that I had forgotten that I had had. But I was also thinking while I was reading this how you know I love fantasy, I love horror, and I love science fiction. Neuromancer doesn't actually feel like it's one of those three genres. It feels like I'm reading like an action story, mm -hmm. um, like it, it it like set in a fantasy in a, in a sci-fi world. But it didn't feel like it was a sci-fi story. It felt like it was an action story. It was a heist story, 
And I also think maybe that's part of the reason why I didn't really care for it so much, because that's also just not a genre that I really get excited about either. Also, maybe another element of its success, if it's a little closer to your sort of dad airport novel, you know, action stories that like are consumed more broadly. So taking this into the um, gaming direction, I mean, has has what what kind of experience have you guys had with with cyberpunk gaming, Shadowrun or others? My copy of Cyberpunk 2020, I don't have it at the table, but uh, it was autographed by Maxwell Mike himself. So you can say I'm like kind of firmly into that, <laughs> like that whole genre and scene. I'm forgetting nice. what is the um, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to be really annoyed when you guys say it because you're going to know it immediately. But what is what is that other one where it's like it's it's basically Shadowrun, but you're also have like fantasy races. That is Shadowrun. Shadow oh, that is Shadowrun. What? Oh, yes. Cyberpunk is the one that's that's meant to be more, um, you know, sort of just Gibson stuff. And um, okay. Shadowrun is like, what if we did that? But we also had like elves and trolls and stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's I was confusing the two then because I've never played either. Oh, no, that's not true. I did play a little bit of Shadowrun in the early 90s and I, I thought it was dumb. <laughs> I think the, the main appeal of Shadowrun was you could just grab an entire fistful of dice like that double handful from time yeah. to time. Yeah, yeah, like just the shooting guy, you'd roll like 10 goddamn dice. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had a success system, right? It was like each die that goes over a number, you're like, okay, I got X amount of successes, does X amount of damage. Uh, yeah, no, it was great. I, me and my friends all had our own individual 36 D6 cubes uh, just to play that. Uh, it was amazing. Um, I never, weirdly, I only ever just like glanced at the cover in the game stores and was like, that's not as interesting. I never played Cyberpunk 2020. I, I went, I saw Shadowrun. It was not my first um, RPG, but might as well have been. It was the first one I really fell in love with. I ran it for 19 years across like five different campaigns wow. uh, before wow. I finally did a big finale that I literally called because I named my adventures. I'm, I'm that pretentious. I called Gibson. And it was all about like, I basically mimicked the plot of Neuromancer of them having to go up to space to shut down an AI called Gibson. Anyway, point is, I'm pretty thick into that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I loved it, loved it to pieces. But you know what's funny? I ran it that much. Uh, I ran over 100 adventures. I don't know how many sessions. And yet here's the challenge I could never solve that I think would be fun to discuss. Um, I could never, and I tried at least three different ways of doing this, I could never fully integrate the Matrix Decker hacker characters side of the adventure so that it didn't make them, mm -hmm. like with the rest of the players at the table, so it didn't make the Decker feel like they were playing their own sort of separate game, and while they were doing their thing, all the other players didn't just start, like, you know, talking about getting pizza and thinking about other things. It was incredibly hard to integrate to the point that by the back end of me running the game, I gave up and would just have an NPC be the hacker. I think well, the only I, way you can do it is to sort of flip characters, right? So it's like the player who's playing Molly in Meat Space is playing Dixie in um, Cyberspace. Because uh, otherwise, like, it's it's not that you felt that way. It's that that's the way the game is structured, right? Is that, you know, hacking is its own separate mini game, And if you don't have another character in there, you're just sitting waiting for something else to happen. Right. But even if you were to do that while he's being case doing the case hacking stuff, what is the rest of the table doing? Well, yeah, especially exactly. if you maintain the time uh, discrepancy, like four seconds in there, 10 minutes in real life, whatever. I had to get rid of that right away because that was the hardest part. Sorry, <laughs> Jeff. No, it's fine. But I, I think that this problem doesn't only exist within Shadowrun. I also think when you're playing D&D &D and, and like the thief is like, I'm going to go and scout ahead. Suddenly they scout ahead and now they're in trouble. And now like the entire focus of it is on 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 suddenly the, the character who scouted ahead this time. I think this is a problem that exists throughout throughout. Um, um, RPGs, but what do you guys think, Demos, Adam? Well, yeah, that actually happened to me. I was running Temple of Elemental Evil back in high school, and uh, one of the 
guys was playing a thief and he just struck off in his own direction and got the situation got hairier and hairier for him. And it was really hard to bounce two sides of the table. Uh, you know, so yeah, you're right, uh, Jeff, that that's, I guess it's not unique to Shadowrun. Like whenever you have one person doing something separate, it's hard to keep everybody engaged. Yeah. And recently in a D&D campaign that I was running online, we had a character who was a vampire and like he would have to run off and get blood all the time. And that was always his like own little side adventure. And sometimes that was really fun. And sometimes it was super annoying. And it works well when the other PCs are engaged in another activity, because I just grab one of these little sand timers and I flip it over. And when the sand is done, I change focus from one person to the to the to the rest of the group. And I just kind of go back and forth in that way. I find that that can be a really helpful way of not making sure I'm not sticking with one group for too long. But the problem is, which I think is what Oliver's discussing here, is when the story is at a standstill until the results of that come back. So, for example, if the hacker character, if everybody, if all the other characters were in the room where the hacker is and they're just standing there waiting for the hacker to finish, or similarly, the scout has gone ahead and the rest of the party's just standing there with their arms crossed waiting for the scout to come back, then that's where it becomes a, a different question. And I think at that point, it's worth maybe checking in with the table, saying like, hey, are you guys enjoying, like, really kind of following the story and being an audience for it? Or do we want to kind of just... D- kind of figure out what the stakes are overall and we'll just roll a die and see how we can go ahead and wrap this up and come up with a little story about what happened together. See, now the challenge with that, I think, with the Decker as opposed to the scout who gets ahead, you know, the thief who gets ahead in d d is the thief is still in the same plane of reality and has not got their own whole set of other rules. They haven't spent hours carefully buying software and designing their cyber deck. And then you're like, I don't know, roll computer skill, target number five. Like if you take, you're boiling down all this stuff <laughs> that they were so excited to, to, to mess with into a single regular ass die roll, uh, you, they then feel cheated in a way a thief, uh, you would never have that, you know, in a, with a thief in D&D. So that was, that was part of the challenge. Sorry, I have strong No, it's feelings. fine. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know enough about Shadowrun, but, but Oliver, can can you explain to me why we couldn't maybe, um, or maybe Robbie can do this and you have familiarity with this as well, um, why you couldn't then say, well, sure, the hacker is going to hack us all in, but then the whole party is going to go in together. Is there a reason you can't do that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what I was saying, right, is that they, if you give them a separate character to play in cyberspace, right, either they're also plugged in, or um, I think a situation that you get to in a lot of these games is, you know, it's like an air gap system, you have to like physically get the hacker in to interface with it. And then you all are sort of like, you know, holding down meat space, like making sure that he doesn't get shot up while, uh, you know, well, he, she, they, whatever does their thing. Um, but uh I think the easiest solution is you say that, you know, your Netrunner is an NPC character. Like we're not going to, we're not going to actually play out that part. And it's just, okay, you know, it's going to take D six rounds for this hack and, you know, kind of hold it down until then. Um, and, and other than that, if, if the, if the other players don't have a character in cyberspace, then yeah, there's, there's nothing to do. Like, I, I don't know that that's a solvable problem. Yeah. Cause I think that, I think the big thing is the intricacy of the hacker because they have so many choices to make. And then you maybe even even if you're an experienced jam who's good at kind of between your players, you know, you cut to the street samurai and they're like, I shoot the guard at the door, buying us more time for the hack. Awesome. Yeah. Got back to the decker. Okay, there's like nine softwares you gotta think about. You know, it, it's just it's it's yeah, it's it's so dense. Sorry, Adam, I didn't mean to talk over you. Yeah, well that was what I was gonna say. Have a baddie come into the room where the other characters are and you know, give them someone to fight while he's doing it, you know? Yeah. A thing I was also thinking about yesterday <clears throat> um, when I was finishing the story up 
is um, I've been reading uh, Cities Without Number, the new Kevin Crawford. Uh, if you if you back the Kickstarter, you get a copy of the PDF um, that's still being worked on. And um, for those of you who don't know, um, Kevin Crawford um, RPGs, like he did um, like a, an OSR style space one called Stars Without Number, an OSR fantasy one called Worlds Without Number. And now he's got an OSR style cyberpunk one coming out called Cities Without Number. And what I was thinking would be cool is if you wanted to play a Cities Without Number campaign, um, you could also, I guess, use stuff from the um, Stars Without Number if you ever want this character to like go off into space and do stuff. Um, so maybe that could be the same universe, Stars Without Number and um, Cities Without Number. But then I was thinking when you when you jack into the into the the system, when you go into cyberspace, maybe you go into Worlds Without Number. Like on that, that, that's like the rule set that you, I mean, cause they're all compatible, but you have different character builds. Um, so I just thought that would be kind of a, a fun way of handling that. Yeah. I, I like that. Uh, what did you guys think also from a gameplay standpoint, the, uh, Sims Dim, uh, sorry, that's the Shadowrun ripoff name or no, what was it called? Robbie, help me out here. What was the, yeah, I think, I think it was Sims Dim. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm getting mixed up with uh, Shadowrun, which was called it something else. Uh, but it was the same thing. Another thing they ripped off. Uh, yeah, well, what did you think about the possibilities of that for gameplay? Because or, or, I think it's cool in a literary thing to be able to have that device to basically switch perspectives without switching perspectives. Um, but at the table, what purpose might it really serve? Because it's like, oh, I go into Molly's thing and I can see what she's seeing. But if Molly is being played by so-and-so at the table, well, you know, everybody's hearing what she's seeing anyway. <laughs> how would how would you how would you make that like a cool thing in the game? Because that was another thing. Aside from recording like blackmailing stuff, like that's something I used in Shadow back in the day. It didn't really have a lot of uses. It, well, exactly. I mean, that's the thing that you're passive, <laughs> and 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 you're also getting some Jeff's Crystal Nolan problems as well. I, oh yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's it, it's it's tricky. Um, but I do want to say something positive, <laughs> please. Um, which, which and and it actually applies. Uh, both to this and I think to to D and D, which I think the Peter Rivera character uses illusions better than I've seen anyway. Anywhere, it's so cool what he does and how he gets into people's heads and knows what it will, what he he can do that will trigger them and make them do the wrong wrong thing. And I thought that was really clever. Yeah, and that's that's almost what kind of um, I guess one of the things that really pushes Case at the very end, right? Where there's the sort of caricatures of. Armitage and Molly, and then he just didn't find anything worthy of parody in case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, good point. I thought I find illusion when it te- the way it tends to be used in games is just like simple distraction. Oh no, there's a big dragon in the room. Watch out. Everybody runs out the room, you know, or whatever. Like this was getting in people's heads. Yeah. So when it comes to cyberpunk gaming, I know a big part of that is like cybernetics. Um, like that's a big component to a lot of that kind of gaming, to a lot of those gaming styles. Um, and I also know that within like kind of the OSR space, a lot of people play fantasy role-playing games in a world where there is like a, a past, um, of ancient technology. So I'm curious, what do you guys think about like bringing something like cybernetics into kind of a science fantasy kind of D and D setting? Does that really work for you? Is that something you're interested in? Is that just aesthetically off for you? Well, that's like in the uh, the Dragonlance novels, right? Where like the guy who forges the Dragonlances, like he lost an arm and then he gets like a fantasy cybernetic arm to replace it. Yeah, which is riffing off the Prince of the Silver Hand. That's Corum. And he's, sure. got, his, yeah, his, yeah. And he's got his eye as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think they're all ripping off Evil Dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm not 
familiar with Dragonlance. I, have, I, I need to read Corum. Um, but uh, those are kind of like lumps of metal that behave magically to be like an arm, aren't they? They're not like cybernetics. They're not like, you know, wires and things tying into your nervous system and like, you know, technology with a capital T. Unless I'm wrong. But unless it's, uh, you know, technology advanced enough as industry. Yeah, it's the Arthur C. Clarke thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of what we're working with in a kind of a dying earth setting style anyways, where it's like, yeah, they've got magic, but that magic probably isn't magic. It's a misunderstanding of the technology they have access to now. I mean, the mechanic- yeah, it's, it's always in the background in, in those kind of games, you know, and you don't like explain it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like it's it's super science. And I feel like Neuromancer could conceivably live in the same, could conceivably be in the same timeline and universe as Jack Vance's Dying Earth. Like, I love the idea that like these like AI who now like talk about how we are like the demons you once worshipped, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, then just slowly just be, like become these demons as like the billions of years pass. Well, so. and in between those two points in Mutant Crawl Classics, they are patrons. <laughs> 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 no, that to me is the timeline, you know, it's DCC, Neuromancer, MCC, Dying Earth. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was, I was about to go there, right? Because uh, I think I read somewhere that all sword and sorcery is post-apocalyptic, right? There used to be this great civilization and, you know, we're just going to kind of delve the, the hidden places in the earth and like pick its bones clean. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm one of those people who likes it when you're playing like, you know, um, you, you know, even like, like Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. And, you know, like, okay, well, here's like a, a laser gun you find in like a crashed alien spaceship that like barrier peak stuff. And I don't see any reason why you could not have, um, you know, some kind of like automated robotic surgical suite that's going to like swap out your body parts with like, you know, it's probably gonna be something a little more gameable than like, a pancreas that won't let you get high but like you know some kind of like new artificial body parts that that kind of change the way that your character functions yeah i think that's a classic uh high-tech uh thing to throw at players in a variety of settings that i love the automated surgery thingy or the yeah. genetic recombinator <laughs> will you become a cool wolf man or will you be re- reduced to genetic goo on the floor uh will you yeah. get a robo arm or will you get an alarm clock that doesn't shut up uh, stuck in your thigh like <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's, there's at least one mcc adventure that does yep. kind of the opposite where like oh if you're like a mutant or like a like a plantient or whatever it's gonna like strip all that out and you're just like a regular person when you walk out yeah, it's like it heals so you, disappointing <laughs> Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, no, I was going to say that I think the mechanics are already worked out for cybernetics with the hand and the eye of Vecna. Basically, <laughs> yeah. you can, I mean, you can call them like relics, but they function as cybernetics. I mean, just got to rebrand it. But I was thinking about um, how would you, if, if D&D is a post-apocalyptic setting, then how would you uh, bring in the whole uh, premise of Neuromancer? I mean, I think in a technological setting, it's the internet and the matrix that um, are, the, the, the analog would be the, the source of magic or the magic system. So uh, what if uh, whatever the source of magic or magical energy became sentient, right? I think that would be a, a, a pretty wild concept at a, at a high level campaign um, that is force that people use um, and just think as a you know natural force is actually some magical framework or matrix that's becoming sentient. I think, I think that's how you can kind of hack into the story. Yeah, so so Demos, you- I was gonna say, I think you can do that with planes using, using planes as a, as a way of just being these like, and in, in just make it a sentient plane, but sorry, Robbie. Oh, I was going to say, Deimos, you just left Gibson and went to Saberhagen. That's not a bad thing, but it just happened. Like you just summarized uh, the uh, what was it the the 
Broken Earth. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, if I may, I'd like to just throw something out there. Uh, Cybernetics are cool, uh, no doubt. But one thing I always felt that Shadowrun handled so well, and it's something that you, you see in Neuromancer to a degree, is uh, NPCs and socializing and finding essentially instead of rumor tables, you would have your contact list and it'd be formalized, like level one contact, acquaintance, level two, buddy, level three, like you're a cult leader and this guy will die for you. Um, and at the beginning, it was just a really fun thing because like you could go around your contacts. Like with my friends, I always joke, okay, it's the first 10 minutes. Oliver's read us the narrative and the premise. Now we're all going to go through our Rolodexes and make phone calls for like 20 minutes trying to get more <laughs> info before we perform the heist or whatever. Um, but it was really fun because like instead of the rumor table, which is no, not bad, not, not no shade. Um, these were people that you could then weave into the adventures and make them like become buddies over time or even become replacement players if the characters died, that kind of thing i just was wondering though because i'm so wedded to shadowrun what other systems you guys have seen that have done something like that to more formalize tapping into your network of contacts much like uh you know case talking to the thin uh you know that term the fixer by the way also ripped off straight by shadowrun anyway jesus uh but uh yeah like how how do you guys feel about like the formalizing of socializing uh and npcs and and, and rumors in uh in gaming and how you know it replicates this feeling of a cool network you're tapping into I would I mean, say the world ACC of, oh, Linkmore does it, um, but go ahead, Robbie. I was going to say the world of darkness games um, definitely did that. I think they did a good job, um, but where you have, you know, you sort of uh, contacts and allies, and these are sort of like things that during character creation, like like you as a player kind of put a lot of like time and thought into, and then, you know, these are sort of like extra characters that you can draw into the narrative um, kind of wherever they fit. Oh, okay. I never played World of Darkness. And in DCC Lankmar, you uh, your character has um, um, dooms, benisons, and dooms, mm-hmm. and those are like the good, be- the, the the helpful things and the unhelpful things that come along with your character, your character's baggage. And many of those are specifically related to a, to a contact. So you have a specific enemy within the city, like you've got an enemy high up in the thieves' guild, or you've got a contact at the um, at the assassins' guild. Um, it's, it's not something that every character automatically has access to, but it's something that many characters end up having access to and, and it is gamified. You're right. I should have thought of that because I have all the DCC Langmar stuff and I've been talking to my buddies about like, I want to scratch that Shadowrun itch, but I don't want to pick up Shadowrun again. I think Langmar would get that feel of like a bunch of dirty rogues in a big city with a lot of factions and a lot of contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I, th- I think that that's maybe something that's not necessarily unique to, I mean, I think cyberpunk settings always use it, but I think it's something that in any kind of an urban setting, something like that could be very helpful. I think the idea of incorporating, of bringing contacts into a Call of Cthulhu kind of game is also something that I imagine would be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, Dan? So, so that's, I mean, that's a type of game that I, have, that I haven't played. And I've definitely not played any cyberpunk games, but I do have Langmar sitting on the shelf. So it looks like I have to dust it off and, and, uh, and dive into it. Yeah. And DCC Dying Earth is coming out soon. And I'm very anxiously waiting for the PDFs to drop so I can start running that because I, I really want to get right into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just paid shipping. So uh, close, close, close. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what do you guys think about trying to recreate the feeling of cool without it getting cringy? You know, like I said, this, this cyberpunk is extremely 16 years old. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, <laughs> and like, I love it, but it's extremely 16 years old. Uh, how, how do you feel as a, as older players? Not too old, he said. Uh, of trying to create, create a sense of cool at the table. I, you know, I love like the the um, 
Rastafarians and Zion cluster, but like I am the wrong color to try to like do any of those voices or whatever at the table. True. Yeah. There's the exotification, right? The whole thing of like, oh, you know, what's really high tech Asian people. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's that element too, for sure. But I mean, I think you can still create, I think, I think if you're careful about it, you know, I think this comes back to a piece of writing advice. I think about where a friend of mine, some once in a while will say to me, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to have one character who's X, like, I don't know, uh, you know, indigenous, let's say. And I'm scared that that one character is going to have to represent the entirety of a group. And I I feel a good solution is always to have uh, more members of that group and have them be different from each other. Then congratulations. And so at the game table, I think as long as you don't have like one cool arrest. Okay, wow, I nearly did it. One cool (laughs) Rastafarian guy. It's dangerous. Watch out. Uh, You know, and he's like, what Rastafarian guys are you know if you have like two <laughs> or, or a bunch uh you know and just make sure to differentiate them i think you can get around it as long as you don't slip into the accents of the guy who nearly did uh, <laughs> well i think yeah because i don't think anybody's saying that white people can't run games with jamaicans in it um i i think you're still allowed to have jamaican characters in your game <laughs> um and that you don't have to now just play in a world with only white people in it because you're a white person running it yeah that's a different um, kind of band <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah absolutely do of, you, you i don't think anybody's yeah. i don't think anybody's saying that that's what's going on um but certainly i think if you are going to include characters like that you do want to be mindful that you're not relying too heavily on the stereotypes around those things mm-hmm. yeah keep them varied and stuff yeah but like, yeah. how do you how do you how do you make a bunch of guys in their like thirties and forties feel like this is cool? This has got an aura of cool. I'm finding out about a new band before anybody else does. Like that's the yeah, hype I always feel. You know, Sorry. you have to re- you have to tap into what's cool now. Like, I mean, I think that in the eighties he nailed it. Like, you you don't like you have what's cool now. Like, it's got to be uh, drawing from uh, current events and and uh, you know I think you have to be connected in a way that that Gibson was. So I think that's the key. And it can't it can't be like what's been done before. It has to like when when he did it, it was new. So it's got to be something else new. Yeah. I, I I think one thing I would recommend is just do it with with a wink and a nod to what you're doing as well. Like really like look at that old 90s vampire the masquerade art, look at that 90s shadow run art. And just describe people as exactly as they are in that with the big spikes on their shoulders and they're smoking a cigarette. And, like just <laughs> really lean into that cheese, the, the cheesiness of that. But also, as Damos was saying, I think you can bring new stuff in too. Like if if you now want to have like a cult of um of like these like Ari Aster cultists who um who are like now in the future or like have created these like cults that are designed to be like in like in the worship of like payment or what the people in Midsummer were or, like what they were worshiping. I mean, if you want to include some kind of a weird subplot with a, with some kind of a, a current um, media reference, I think you could do that as well. Good point. And I mean, that's kind of what I was really, really bad for for doing uh, when I was a teenager. Like, all the street gangs had names ripped off of Massive Attack albums. I had a, I had, I had a, a crazy assassin that was basically just Bjork. For like... Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> but we are about out of time. So just uh, quick final thoughts. And also, if you have anything you would like to um, quickly promote um, for the for the listeners, you can do that as well. So, um, Adam. One thing that I did like about the book, which I didn't get too much, was the ending of it and the way and at the I like at the end how like they uh, the merging of the two AIs doesn't destroy the world. It doesn't usher in a new era. Kind of nothing changes. Nobody changes. Uh, Freaking Molly runs off and Case just hooks up with another woman 
And the computer says at the end, uh, what does he say? He says, things aren't different. Things are things. And it's like, it's like they go through all this and like nothing really changes. Uh, and it was also, I really like the fact that when the two things merged and became a like fully sentient AI, they decoded this old uh, message from an AI at Alpha Centauri, and it was the only one that could understand it. And that was like a really cool thing at the very end. So the ending was the best part, I think. That's a good he point. I really loved that. that too. And it's cool that the the that the um that the omniscient a the semi-omniscient AI now has a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um Adam, I thought you were gonna say, you know, the thing I forgot to say I really liked is when the book was was, was the ending, because then I could close it and not keep <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going. <laughs> Robbie. Yeah, I, I think this is a fantastic book, and anybody who doesn't like it is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> Deimos. Um, I agree. It was a really satisfying, well-crafted ending. Um, I think uh, when I was reading it, the first two thirds, I thought this would be really good inspiration for a high magic society. You know, again, drawing from Clark's Law uh, in the, uh, you know, Mistara uh, setting, there's a, this Alphacian, like alien kind of, uh, you know, very advanced magical society. I think reading Neuromancer would help with running that kind of high magic society. Very cool. Oliver. Well, yeah, I'll plus one Robbie's like, this is good. If you don't think so, you're bad. But also, um, (laughs) also, uh, yeah, I just think even if you're not heavy into this stuff, but you're like studying, you know, genre literature, it's a must read because it's just too influential to ignore. Uh, So I think it's a very important book as well as I, in my opinion, a very fun first novel. And I really appreciate you, Jeff, saying, uh, yeah, if you have anything to plug, by the time this goes up, my Kickstarter will be over. But we just hit almost 90% for New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine issues one and two featuring an original story by Michael Moorcock and a whole bunch of other names uh, that are also very important. But not as recognizable um so if you want to go to new sorcery.com and see if we failed or succeeded but by this point i don't know <laughs> that's cool you can sign up for the mailing list and get issues later when they're available in the fall thanks jeff <laughs> perfect thanks oliver dan uh, just one thing it reminded me of stanley weinbaum's story pygmalion spectacles um where it's all hypnosis and trick filming uh, that achieves this um, and now the camera's working. That is my rather amusing book cover. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's completely unrelated to the book. Yeah, is it? Very, <laughs> very late '80s game design cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the, the the artist went on to do jigsaw puzzles, like cottages and things. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. And before we wrap up, I also wanted to uh, let you guys know that um, after the next book we do, the George McDonald fan, Fantasties, is that how you say it? Um, after that, we're moving from every two weeks to every four weeks. But what we're going to start doing is we're going to start doing a movie club in between. And um, we can watch a movie and chat about that. And when this drops, I'm going to drop the poll for our first movie club. And um, and I'm doing movies by Joe D'Amato, uh, who's like an Italian horror filmmaker. And we've got three horror films and one fantasy film in the mix. It'll be uh, between Anthropophagus, The Grim Reaper from 1980, Beyond the Darkness from 1979, The Blade Master from 1982, and Absurd from 1981. So that poll will be available. And if you guys want to watch a movie and chat with us about it, we can do that between Fantasties and whatever we're doing after that. Fantasties. Nice. Fantasties. Yeah, cool. All right. Thanks for hanging out. I'll see you guys next time. 
Yeah, cheers. A lot of fun. Cheers. Bye-bye. The library is closed. <laughs>